so so my dog chases the cat around a lot, which which I think is awesome. And and the cat doesn't really like the dog too much. So uh, Friday night, I go walking into our bedroom. Well, not our bedroom. That'd be creepy, right? But you know, my wife and my bedroom. I walk in, and it just and it just reeks, like just stinks. And I'm like, oh, what is that? It's, our dog's like 90 pounds or so, and so her bed's like kind of over here on the side. And and I walk, it just stinks. And I'm like, what is that? Well, the cat snuck into our bedroom and peed on the dog's bed. <laughs> so now, when the dog wants to attack the cat, I'm like, get the kitty. I am totally fine. It's a godly dog right there. It wants to eat the, yeah. Okay, so a couple things. Uh, if you did a thing with planting roots and you, and you haven't gotten a letter back that says, hey, this is what it sounds like you did for planting roots. Is this cool? We're on the same page. If you didn't get a letter, uh, let the people know at the Welcome Center in the back. Uh, just give them your email or something and we'll get a hold of you because it means that we don't have your right address. You can also send an email to giving at ourelement.org so we can make sure we get that to you. Uh, so the turkey drive is going on for the Central Coast Rescue Mission. They did it at Walmart yesterday, and we told them, no, no, Element people will just bring them here. It'll be cool. So we've got some stuff out, uh, some things outside for you to put uh, turkeys in. Uh, they, they'll feed a bunch of people over the course of the holidays with those, and so that's why they're out there. If you forgot one, you have to about 12.15, maybe 12.30. We're going to hang out. You're going to run to Spencer's and back or something. I don't know if you forgot. But seriously, first service overfilled the tub. It was amazing. I don't know how second did. But we had to get more tubs, so let's see how you guys. No pressure. No, no pressure. It's just. Uh, also, I wanted to hit one more time the Agape, which is next Sunday. Uh, usually we f- switch off years, and one year we do it in people's homes. We all go have dinners in people's homes. And then this year is, is an off year, so we're doing it all together here. Uh, we're going to put like fire pits out in the field. That's why we're telling you to bring a, a chair. Uh, and it'll, it'll, it'll be a whole lot of fun. It'll be a whole lot of fun. So next week. Food. It's kind of funny. We, we handed out these pans, and they had the, these recipes in them of what people are supposed to make and bring back. The only ones left were the vegetables. It's like, even this morning, there were like three on the stage, and it was, and it was carrots and green beans. And I'm like, well, of course you'd leave those, you know? And so, and so people took them, and this morning, I'm like, now just fill them with cookies and bring them back. It's okay. Who really likes, I know some of you guys like vegetables. When things turn green in my fridge, we throw them away. Seems just like a natural law, right? Uh, okay, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. Inside those, you'll have a little bit of extra notes that go along with today's message, as well as some questions to go a little bit deeper. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Version. Click on Live in Version. It'll bring it up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and verses and questions and all that goes along with today's message. Why don't you stand with me, reading God's Word. We will get started. It's Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. And Jesus says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people how to recognize the things that truly come from you and how to live and walk in those ways that we'd be a people who entire lives and hearts are bowed down to you and your will and your calling in our lives, that we would focus on the person of Christ and all that we do so that you gain great glory and your people live in much joy. Amen. Have a seat. So this is week 40 of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Only got a few weeks left. It's going to end right before Christmas. So Merry Christmas. We are going to end this thing this year. Uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 15 is where we're going to kind of be in for a little bit. Uh, before we ended the Sermon on the Mount, we hit this great thing that starts talking about trees and fruit and bad fruit and good fruit. And we thought it was a great place to talk about uh, kind of some history of the church and how we got some of the things that we did today. And so we're talking about heretics in the early church, how they influenced the early church, and how some of that even comes through into today. Uh, last week we talked about these guys named the Ebionites, and I hope I didn't confuse you. I hope we by the end you do have a clear understanding of not just Jesus, but the early church and the scriptures and how we got them today. This is a lot of history and a lot of stories. As we talked about last week, it's pretty easy today to throw around the word heretic. You hear people say it all the time. It's a negative, it's a mean word. Some of you, you know, think it when I when I talk about how awful your country music is. And I'm like, oh, country music, it's evil. And like, some of you have even said, stop the heresy of the country music hating. I'm like, other of you just like stare daggers at me when, when I say it. It's okay. A herald truth of righteousness is often without honor. It's all right. <laughs> Now, last week I told you that you've got a common image of a heretic. It's like this willful person intent on destroying people's faith, intent on error. A lot of heretics actually weren't that way. Uh, traditionally, you know, heretic is someone who's compromised in essential doctrine, lost sight of who God is. A lot of times it's through oversimplification. Literally, the word heresy, it means choice. A choice to deviate from teaching in favor of people's own insights. And this is always really a bad idea because America loves reality television, and that should tell you a lot about our own insights right there. Uh, Some Christians use the word to refer to anybody that disagrees with them, whether it's political or theological. Like, hey, you're not in the club, you don't agree with me, you're you're a heretic. I don't think you really want to be in that club anyway. uh, At one point, the Catholic Church labeled Galileo a heretic because he said the earth revolves around the sun and not vice versa. And even with all the bad press, I think the concept of pointing out and stopping heresy is still a valid one. You know, heresy threatens to confuse a lot of believers because there's speculations by people who are very authoritative out in the world and they say things and it happens all the time. And there's often a fine line of balance between allowing this free exploration of who God is and not undermining the revelation of who God has revealed himself to be. Now, last week, I talked about how heretics are people who a lot of times called themselves Christians, seeking to clarify the full meaning of the faith. Uh, Sometimes they asked really legitimate questions, and they weren't heretics because of the questions. What made them heretics was some of the answers that they gave and adhered to were wrong. And what happened a lot of times, they went too far by making the faith more compatible with ideas of the day rather than what the scriptures actually taught. You know, things they found appealing. Like in, in the early church, a lot of people were like, you know, we love pagan and Greek philosophy and Gnosticism. Well, let's the, just that combine that with Christianity. It'll be okay. I mean, today there's a whole lot of stuff that we do that with, so we've got to be really, really careful. Now, in Matthew, starting uh, verse 7, verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets. This would be false orators of God, those who claim to speak for God but don't. Uh, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, by what they produce, by what they actually do. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. That's one of the ways you tell a heretic what they produce. Are they bringing people to know and love Jesus more? Are they talking about the grace and the goodness of God? Or is it all about them and trying to make God agree with them? And they're producing some horrible things in their families, in their workplace, in their lives around them. That's, that's the question. And so today, part of what I want to do is help clear up how the New Testament, the Bible that we have, kind of came into being. And there's a lot of questions about, around that usually. Uh, it's why we cover it in our apologetics class. If you went through that, if you missed it, it's online, it's free. 
get what you pay for, but it's free. It's the first week. And then uh, we have our gospel class. The first week of every gospel class, we talk about the scriptures. It's, it's the basis of where we start. And given enough time, the church would have come up with an official list of books that they considered sacred scripture, but two guys really pushed them into it, two guys who we now consider heretics. They were named Marcion and another guy named Montanus. And this isn't all like the Da Vinci Code. If you saw the movie or read the book, horrible history. It's either made up or just lies outright. Now today, when you think about Christianity, even people who don't believe in Jesus look at Christianity, and, it, and you cannot separate the Christian faith from the Bible, right? Right. Four of us are paying attention. Okay, so great. Yeah, you cannot separate it from the Bible. We all see it that way. Scripture shows Christianity, its foundation in evangelism, in teaching, in worship, in the person of Jesus, uh, in, in the covenants of grace. When we look back over Christian history, we find few, if any, decisions more basic than those made in the first three centuries about the bringing together and the formation of the Bible. I mean, the scriptures, they serve not just as inspiration for believers facing martyrdom, but they also as a supreme standard for the church in which they would combat heresies. The Bible made Christianity what we would call orthodox, right belief. And the constant test of any teaching was, what do the scriptures say? And they would call the scriptures the canon, one end, not two. So it's not like, boom, I'm going to shoot a pumpkin out of it, but canon, one end. It's a Greek term, and it meant a measuring rod. Or we, today we would say, like, a ruler. What's the, the, the width and the height and the depth, and how, how does it measure up? That's what the scriptures were, the measuring rod for our lives. It translated to this idea of these books that came, became the rule of the churches. And so in your Bibles, you have the Old and the New Testament. The word testament means covenant. It's a term for a special relationship between two parties. And so biblically, the term stands for a special relationship between God and man that is initiated and sustained by the grace of God. In your Bibles today, you have an Old Testament or the Old Covenant, which is something the early Christians claimed as well as the Jews. You also have something called the New Testament, which the early Christians produced, sometimes I would say even in spite of the Jews. Uh, Now, the books in your Bible today where they were read publicly in early church congregations, and in early church congregations, they only read publicly books they considered to be sacred scripture. Uh, Peter, in the scriptures, talked about Paul's writings as scripture. And since the first Christians were all Jews, Christianity in one sense was never without a canon of Scripture. Jesus accepts the Old Testament as God's word to man. In Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus is walking on a road to Emmaus with some guys, and he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law of Moses is the Torah, the prophets are the prophetical writings, and the Psalms are the wisdom literature. That's the entire Old Testament. Jesus believed the statements of Scripture. He endorsed it teaching. He obeyed its commands. He set himself up to fulfill the pattern of redemption laid out in the Scriptures. And early Christians simply just took and they adopted that attitude. They were heirs of that attitude. And as I said, given enough time, the church would have drawn up a list of their New Testament canon of of their books because they're already dispersed, they're already accepted, they're already read, but certain events forced the churches to do it. And the first one was this guy again named Marcion. Now here's here's a picture of Marcion that's kind of funny. This is uh, the Apostle John supposedly on on the left there, or my right, your left. And the other guy, that's supposed to be Marcion, how his face is all scratched out. They didn't like him. Okay, it's like, oh, so we'll just scratch his face out. That'll take care of him. Whatever. Here's, here's a picture of what they think he might have actually looked like. Looks like my dog when she begs for a bone. <laughs> Maybe not. Somebody last service was like, oh, that's so mean. I'm like, my goodness, my goodness, I can't make any jokes at all. About 140 A.D., so this guy named Marcion shows up. He's a wealthy ship owner from Sinope, which is on the Black Sea, and he was a son of a bishop. <laughs> no, really, he was, okay? 
And so, so it's kind of like he, he's a pastor's kid. He's got all the baggage. If you're a pastor's kid or admit a pastor's kid, you know, tons of baggage that, that come along with that. And so what he did is he comes under the teaching of this Gnostic uh, guy named Cerdo. Now, now Cerdo you know, teaches that the, the flesh is evil and the spirit is good. And I think he probably went to him because, because he wanted to poke it in his dad's eye a little bit. And so Marcion takes to, starts to morph this teaching. And he started to teach that there were two different gods. There's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And they're two different gods. The God of the Old Testament, he said, is unknowable. The Christian God, well, he has been revealed. The God of the Old Testament, he is just sheer justice, like a junior high girl on crack that didn't get a new iPhone. That's like the God of the Old Testament, right? And the God of the New Testament, oh, he is loving and kind and gracious, like a junior high girl who got a pony and she stuffed full of chocolate. That's what the God of the New Testament is like. Mar- he didn't say those words, obviously, right? Okay, but, you know, Marcion, he starts to gain a large following before he is ever deemed a heretic. Now, why is he a heretic? Because he said there were two different gods. He said that the Old Testament God was not just full of wrath, but he is also the author of evil. He said the Old Testament God is only concerned for the Jewish people alone and was willing to destroy everybody else. By contrast, well, the New Testament God, the Christians God, well, that's a God of grace and love for all. He reveals himself in Jesus, two different gods. And because he believed that the God of the Old Testament loved the Jews exclusively, he began to say some very hateful things about the Jews and Judaism. He began to do some very hateful things against Jews and Judaism. In order to make this whole set of beliefs work for him, he brought and had what he called the New Testament scriptures, the New Testament canon. He rejected the entire Old Testament, uh, any New Testament book that had anything good to say about Jews or Judaism. So he got rid of Matthew, Mark, Acts, Hebrews, any writing that contradicted him he got rid of, so like Second Timothy and Titus. And what he left with is, is like this compromised version of Luke's gospel that's totally mutilated, uh, no uh, nativity story accounts, and ten letters of Paul. He man-crushed on Paul, okay? I mean, he just, he loves Paul. Everything was all about Paul. But he tried to wipe away Paul's Jewness, his Judaism, his whatever that is, his Hebrewness, you know, all that. But, yeah. And so, so he focuses on Paul as the apostle to the Gentile, that Paul was the only one who got it right, who didn't corrupt the real gospel, you know, the one that agrees with him. Now, Paul was that guy. Marcion believed, because of his view of seeing two different gods, that the Christian life was to be free of all material reality. You know, so when you jump off a crazy cliff, you just kind of keep going. And so he says that Jesus wasn't really a human being at all, because matter is evil. He wouldn't be born of a woman, because matter is totally evil. So in his, in his view, and what he taught is that at the first miracle of Jesus, at the wedding where he makes 180 gallons of wine, Jesus magically floats down from the sky, and that's where he starts his public ministry. Apparently they were drinking a lot because nobody noticed. I know, I can make fun of him, right? Uh, so he requires celibacy from everybody who was baptized. I don't thinking, I just won't get baptized. That'll be okay. Because, because he believes sex was physical and it led to the creation of new bodies. And new bodies are considered evil because it's flesh. It's a Gnostic teaching. He taught that alcohol was evil. And Christians shouldn't even use wine in communion because it's more substantial than water. So you've got to use water in communion. He believed that the law was physical and that love is spiritual. You know, because he never gave any any laws, right? So Marcion was excommunicated from the church in 144 AD as a heretic, but like all crazies, he had this following, and they started to make churches that looked just like other churches. Hmm, sounds like today. And people walk in and go, oh, this must be, you know, a, a nice church, and all of a sudden you got all the crazy teaching, and some people stayed and got swayed away. Uh, his ideas spread throughout Italy, and as far as Arabia, Armenia, even Egypt, all the way into the 4th century, outside of Damascus, there were still Marcionite villages. 
What Marcion did is he laid out and presented the church, the Orthodox Church, a problem. His list of New Testament books. What do we do with that? All of his books, again, were shaped in the image of Paul and Marcion's rejection of the Old Testament. And again, Marcion's worship as Paul was nothing short of idolatry. He said, you know, Paul is the great enemy of the law and the great spokesman for the gospel. He said, Paul, Paul in the end becomes the supreme figure in Marcionite churches. Like, not Jesus, it's Paul. Marcion says this, Christ has descended from heaven twice, once to suffer and die, and once to call Paul. <laughs> I think it's funny. And to reveal to Paul the true significance of his death. In heaven, Paul sits at the right hand of Christ who sits at the right hand of God. Now, the church father Tertullian, okay, he said after Marcion's views had so infected the church that Paul ceased to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and now he's simply the apostle to the heretics. Now, Marcion had to misinterpret all of Paul to make it fit his beliefs. I mean, Colossians 2, 20-23, Paul says, Paul says it's stupid to follow dumb laws that say don't taste or don't touch. But that didn't make the church's problem any less real. Marcion had so destroyed the beauty of Paul's words by misrepresentation that they saw almost no way to endorse Paul without endorsing Marcionite teaching. And this happens today as well. I mean, how does a church today endorse proper alcohol consumption without people calling them drunkards? How do I talk about cookies all the time without people saying, you're a glutton? How do you do that? Even we did the Song of Solomon a couple years ago. And we talked about sex throughout the scriptures and, and how God created it to be a good and wonderful thing. We had people mad at us and actually leave element when we went through the Song of Solomon because we talked about sex so frankly. I mean, God makes things good. We try to destroy those things to the point where it's hard to praise the goodness of it without being judged. And this is what happened to Paul. This is exactly what happened to Paul. But in the end, the early churches believed that, that Paul meant too much to the church to dismiss him and his writings because of Marcion's extreme views. The apostolic letters were too well known and too widely used. So what the church did is they restored all of Paul's letters and the other apostles' letters, and they put the gospel accounts in there, and they linked them with the book of Acts as a bridge, which is essentially what you have in your New Testaments today. See, the church treasured the grace preached by Paul, but it realized if you jettison the Old Testament, it's totally suicidal because the New Covenant doesn't make any sense without the Old. And by retaining the Old Testament, the church made two very important points. Number one, it insisted that faith for a Christian would have to reconcile both the wrath and the love of God. How do these come together? See, Marcion's message is too easy. By eliminating the Old Testament, he hoped to make you know, the love of God central for a Christian. But love that never faces the demands of justice is not Christian love. Paul found in the cross not only a demonstration of God's love, but also of his righteousness and his mercy. Paul said Christ's death allowed God to be both just and justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Romans 3.25 and 26. This is the marvel of the grace that Marcion missed. Secondly, by retaining the Old Testament, what the church did was they underscored the importance of history for the Christian faith. We are an historical faith. We trace our roots to specific places and specific times where God has shown up and God has actually done things. I mean, none so more than the person of Jesus Christ, but it is an historical faith. But that also means that when we live this faith, a real faith includes facing hardships in life. The times where you have to go, God, why? What is that? God, help me. But in the end, realizing that God is still good and he still has a plan. Today, nobody really calls themselves Marcionites. But really, wherever somebody wants to kind of remove the Jewishness away from what Christianity is supposed to be, you really have major issues. I mean, Marcion tried to take Jesus away from his Jewish heritage. You know, the Nazis did the same thing. And they tried to take Jesus as the reason to kill all the Jews. Skinheads, KKK, white supremacists hate Jews, and they claim it in the name of Jesus. And Jesus was a Jew. 
Don't say that. They'll beat you up and, and kill you. But he goes, no, say that. You need to say it. You know, this is why at Element, we try to give you the full counsel of the scriptures. We want you to understand it all. We do not divorce the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New. It's why we took a year and a half just to go through the book of Genesis. So you see how it all relates and it all comes together. We must understand law and grace in terms of redemption. And so Marcion, he pushes the churches into opening and forming this New Testament canon. Another heretic forces the churches into closing it. His name is Montanus. Here's an artist's representation of what they think you look like. Kind of like... Okay. Uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 16. I'll try and be quick with Montanus, by the way. I know I'm never quick, but I'm trying. Uh, second century comes around. Christianity is starting to grow, even though there's a ton of persecution. Uh, but the church has always been a place where we believe we surrender to the will of the Spirit of God. That God will lead us and guide us and show us things. In John 16, starting in verse 13, Jesus says this. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said, He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. What Jesus does is he promises his spirit to lead and to guide them. So how, do there, how does there come a time in the church where the church declares that all the inspired books that could be written had been written? Uh, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, was very bitter about it, and he said the Holy Spirit was chased into a book. It's kind of funny. So again, as the second half of the second century, uh, change is coming over the church. More people are joining it. Even in the face of this persecution, more people are coming in, and some of the distinctions between the church and the world around them is fading away, kind of like day a little bit. Uh, they saw the church becoming more and more secularized. And into this situation, sometime between 156 A.D. and 174 A.D., this guy named Montanus appears in Asia Minor. He starts to call people to a higher standard, greater discipline, uh, greater separation of church from the world. And in one sense, I mean, in one sense it's really bad. In one sense it could be okay if it's just going, hey, you know, follow Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to talk about a much more strict law. And you have to understand this strict law. And in order to make himself heard, he brought around with him two prophetesses. The names were Prisca and Maximilia. And everywhere they would go, they would start prophesying, like, I am the Spirit of God, and I'm telling you this. They would prophesy two things. Number one, the speedy second coming of Jesus. About 2,000 years ago. It's not speedy. Okay? So, okay, they're wrong. And the other thing they'd talk about is how everything that Montana said was right and true and correct. And when the prophets spoke, they would actually say those words, I am the Spirit of God. Not, thus says the Lord, or I speak in the name of God. Nothing. It was, I am the Spirit of God. If you have kids in this room, you may want to just cover their ears just for a second, just so you understand. There's your warning. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's so funny. People talk to me about the podcast, and they go, I never see some of the stuff that you do. So anyway, so, um, it, and I'm like, see, you get it. You, you're here. So anyway, so um, what they would do when they said, I am the Spirit of God, they would speak in a tone of ecstasy. Um, I said orgasm for service. I said, don't say that. Okay, like climax, right? So it's like, I just said it. I know, whatever. You know, but, but that's how they would do it. They, and just, I am the spirit of God. I'm not going to act it out for you, right? Because you, you would never get that mental picture out of your head to be like, oh my goodness. <laughs> you know? You'd go to bed and have nightmares. I know, I get it. But that's how they, that, that's how they would do it. And that's how they would say, I am the spirit of God. And some people thought it was weird. The people said, well, you know, it must be the, the spirit of God. Montanus, you know, he was convinced that his prophetesses and he were God-given instruments of new revelation. He said that first, you know, it was the first age, the age of the Father, and then it was the second age, the age of the Son, and now is the age of the Spirit, the final age. And it's always odd to me that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, nobody knows what to do with the Holy Spirit. He's always like, you know, to make him that weird uncle who shows up for a meal uninvited and wreaks havoc in your house. It's the Holy Spirit, woo! You know, it's like, seriously, the Holy Spirit is never going to contradict Jesus. 
Okay, the Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus, speaking the things that Jesus has him speak. He is not going to contradict Jesus. So Montana said that the law of Moses was given for that first age, not the law of God, the law of Moses. And the second age was instituted when Jesus came, which was, you know, not grace. The law of Jesus was perfection. So it's a much more strict law. And in the third age, an even stricter law was given. I mean, I don't know how you get more strict than perfection, but apparently it was. Nothing propels these people towards grace. It's more and more works and more and more laws. The Montanists, what they generally did is had a whole lot of acts of charity. Because you're under law, you better do a lot of stuff. They, they went through a lot of martyrdom and, and they went right through, because again, that's, that's law, you've got to go through it. They also formed communities where they, they didn't want people to get married. They wanted celibacy, you know, to, to reign supreme. Not because they saw flesh as evil, but because Jesus is coming back right around the corner, you know, it might, maybe tomorrow, so, so don't get married. I'm like thinking, come back tomorrow, get married. That's just me, Song of Solomon, there you go, okay? Thus says the Lord. Anyway, so, 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 so they had this idea, you know, well, you know, we're going to make our communities, and they're not going to do this, we're going to focus on this. Uh, Mon- Montanus also had spontaneous martyrs. Kind of think of like a, like a suicide bomber without the vest. They would volunteer and purposely seek out martyrdom. The wider church is like, what in the world is wrong with you? Go home and hit yourself in the head with a hammer. Stop running around. I mean, if you're martyred for your faith, fine, but you don't need to go and seek it out. So the church has started to draw up this list of their canon of scripture because of Marcion. They wanted the books they considered to be sacred scripture as, to be as old as possible, dated and written by the, the early apostles or those taught directly by them. And so the church believed that new revelation ended with Jesus and the events surrounding his death and resurrection. So the writings closest to that time were therefore the most trustworthy. Montanus believed that the Holy Spirit was still revealing new truth. And it was truth that was different than what Jesus or the apostles spoke and taught. And so he said, you can't close the canon. You've got to be able to put new stuff in there all the time. And so the church believed it had to act. Because Montanus is like, I'm this herald of new spirituality. And, and in one sense, I mean, calling a church to holiness and change is, is a good thing. But anytime somebody questioned the Montanus, they said, well, this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. How dare you question me? And churches started to split over this. Because Montanus claimed the right to push Jesus and the apostolic message aside to the background. That the fresh revelation of the Spirit could overwrite the gospel at any point, And Jesus was no longer central. In the name of the Holy Spirit, Montanus denied God's decisive revelation had occurred in the person of Jesus. And the church wanted to keep the gospel central, who Jesus was central. So it wanted to make all later teaching and worship and life center on Jesus and the apostolic witness of who he was. And the best way to do that, they said, was to take all the Gospels and the apostolic writings and set them apart as uniquely authoritative. Uniquely authoritative. Which is why I believe God allowed all this to happen in the first place. So you would get the Bible you have today. It is not that the church ceased to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. The difference was that in the first days, the Holy Spirit had enabled men to write the sacred books of the Christian faith. In the later days, the Holy Spirit enables men to understand and interpret and to apply what has been written. We know that the church assumes this position because by AD 90, you have a list of essentially what your New Testament is called the Muratorian Canon, essentially the books that you have today. And they took the Old Testament, the New Testament, and they kept it together because they believe one fulfills the promises of the other. And in the end, this all again came down to Montanus' view of Jesus, that Jesus wasn't the focus. I mean, the church leaders even tried to talk to him. They said, do you understand that Jesus sent the Spirit, and the Spirit's not going to contradict him? And Montanus wouldn't listen to it at all. The church believed that Jesus didn't send more laws, that God sent Jesus to save us 
from the curse of the law, from our sins, to, re- to raise us to new and true life. That grace in the person of Jesus means that Jesus died the death we should have died, that he lived the life we should have lived, and he's given his righteousness to us so we can stand before God and have a relationship with him again. Everything Montanus did tried to overshadow that with more and more law. More and more law. In our lives, we believe that the Holy Spirit comes, and what, what he does is he makes us perfect in God's sight because of the blood of Christ, but day by day by day, he makes us more and more holy. We call this, it's a big Christian word, it's called sanctification. It really means salvation in present time, that day by day by day by day, we are made more and more holy. The Holy Spirit does that. We live and trust and walk in who he was. And what's really interesting about even years later, the Montanist church essentially disintegrates. You can only predict the coming of Jesus so many times where people go, okay, you're a nut job, done. But what the beautiful thing of grace in this was the churches welcomed them back in. Open arms, just love them and say, you know, come, come back in, let's worship Jesus together. Now, today it's, it's possible to see Mars and Montanus in many movements that are constantly trying to influence the church as a whole. Jehovah's Witnesses have chopped up the Bible and added things to it to try and make it agree with their theology. Mormonism today has added books on top of the scriptures. I mean, they have four standard works, and the King James Version of the Bible is the lowest, and you have three others above it. Plus, you have ongoing revelation of whatever the prophet of the church says today. Uh, You know, I think there are Christian sects today, S-E-C-T-S, okay? Sex today, you'll keep putting you know, out dates of when Jesus is going to return. I think even things like modern-day dispensationalism have throwbacks to Montanus. And that's not to say things like, oh, those people are evil and we're so good. It's simply we need to come under what Jesus taught. We need to live under the grace of God and not our own warped thinking of these things. Because against all of these movements, the church has always held that the new age began at the resurrection of Jesus and that goes to the culmination of all things. In regard to the scriptures, in one sense, yeah, Christians, you know, created the canon of scripture in the New Testament. The decisions in that are part of history. But in another sense, they're only recognizing the writings that had made their authority already known in the churches by the Spirit of God. You know, the the shape of the New Testament shows that the early church's primary aim was to fully submit to the teaching of Jesus and those apostles and the Spirit of God. And throughout the rest of history that has shaped the character of Christianity for all time. I know some people run off and do some crazy things in the name of Christianity. But they're not really following the Jesus of Scripture and the God of the Bible. They're running off trying to do all their own crazy things. They're being more like Montanus or Marcion and not like believers who truly trust in Jesus. Because the central message of the Bible, if you've gone to element for any length of time, the central message of the Bible is what? Jesus. Again, I tell you, half the time I ask a question, you say, Jesus, you're going to be right here. Okay? Jesus, it's always about Jesus. The grace of God stands out, calls to people. You are lost and broken. I get that. I will wash you. I will make you clean. I will save you. This is what Jesus does for his people. He washes. He cleans us. It's not like you've got to get all cleaned up to step into a church or God's going to send lightning to zap you. That's not what it's like. Jesus is the one who does the washing. We don't wash ourselves. We trust him for everything. We live in the grace of God. This is why Matthew 7, 20, Jesus reminds us, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. By their fruits. These false teachers, that's how you recognize them. Anyone who steers you away from Jesus and the central meaning of God's grace is steering you away from the truth. And so I think like the early church, you know, we cling to Jesus because he first clung to us. He first saved us and sought us and bought us. Part of Element's vision statement at the very end is to glorify God by teaching and living out the scriptures. That's the first part of our mission statement. 
Because that is what is important. We glorify God, Jesus, by how? By teaching and living out those scriptures that were handed down to us. Hopefully we teach them in a right way. That talks about the grace and the goodness of God. Because quite honestly, when we run after our own minds, what we want all the time, we go so off course. So off course. That's why you get crazy things like the KKK and Nazis. Because, because no one's really following Jesus in the central message of the gospel. That God has first loved you. Because he has first loved you, then you love. God has first blessed you. And because God has first blessed you, then you bless. I mean, this is the whole thing. People say, oh, I see God. God has first sought you. And then everything else comes after that. I mean, this is the beauty of the gospel. It centers all on the person of Christ. It's what heretics always forget. It's one of the reasons we talk about communion every week. It's where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice because it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. This place reminds us of the hope and grace of redemption. We lay all of our baggage down at the foot of the cross and Jesus saves us and he renews us and he... It's amazing what Jesus does. So we become a people who focus on him and the truth handed down to us, the reliable and authoritative witnesses. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you guys uh, to take communion. There'll be some elders and deacons in the back, and if you need prayer for anything, they'd love to pray for you. If you've got a lot of questions, like you read the Da Vinci Code and you're like totally confused, love to talk to you about that. Show you all the places where it's horrible history, and Dan Brown's like, I'll just make this up now. It sounds good. You know, we can talk to you about all that. Uh, if you have any other questions about it, you can, you can uh, go and listen to our apologetics class, uh, our gospel class, you know, deals with the scriptures and things like that. Thank you. I, I knew I talked him to sleep. He was so intent earlier. Well, she had two cups of coffee. And so if you need prayer, and not just for that, for anything, you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray for you. There's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. So giving is part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's simply a response to what he has done. And there's, there were some cookies and stuff in the back earlier. I hope they're still there. Grab a cookie, meet somebody else, because cookies are here by the grace and goodness of God. Thank you. Yes. And... And we would invite you, when you grab something, maybe meet somebody else. If, if you're new or newer and you feel like you haven't connected yet, meet some other people. I mean, maybe go out to lunch with somebody. Talk through some of the questions that are in there. Because seriously, we need to really work through what do we allow to be authoritative in our lives? What do we allow to speak truth you know, that doesn't change, that is, that is constant? What do we allow to be that truth that speaks to us? Because there's a lot of voices out there in our world today, and it's growing exponentially with all the information that's being thrown at you. And so we must be people that keep coming back to Jesus, his spirit leading us, and the scriptures as they have been handed down. Our God is good. Our God is good. That has never once changed in the history of the human race. God has always been good, and we must live in that goodness. Now, I'm going to have uh, Eric, where's Eric at? I mean, Eric come and pray for us, because it's really awkward, you know, if I'm like playing music to you, and I got to play my guitar, right, man, it's, so I'm Eric come pray for us. Oh, I, I'm moving, Sorry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. Lord, um, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have given us your words. Father, because you loved us so much, that you've sent Jesus, Lord, to come and to rescue us. And Father, you've sent the Holy Spirit to to live in us and to teach us and to comfort us. So, Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Lord, this morning, I pray that 
you would help us to hear your voice. Jesus said your sheep would hear your voice. And we know that you have given us of your spirit, Lord, so that we can know you. And we know that your spirit convicts us of sin. It leads us to Jesus. It confirms and assures us of your grace. And so as we uh, sit here this morning and we just think about the awesomeness of the revelation that you've given to us. And Jesus, the death that you died for us so that we could know you, so that we could have true life. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal our hearts to us, Lord, that you would convict us of sin, that we would turn from our sin, that we would turn to you, and that we would find hope in your grace, Lord. And that we would find strength in your power. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you to have your way in our lives. Lead us into your kingdom, into your righteousness, into your holiness. And empower us to love one another. Thank you so much. In your precious name, Jesus.